Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked us not to read an ad, so enjoy the show! Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hi everyone, I'm Eric Arnault and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast. This week, it's part two of a recording we did way back in May themed Wild Women of the Woods, featuring the local charitable organization Smash Coven and starring a fantastic lineup of women sharing stories, singing songs, and bringing the house down. This week, you'll get pieces from Molly McGowan, our own Katie Johnston-Smith, Katie Dow, Jean Jennis, and Larissa Zagaris, plus music from Katie, Becca Brown, myself, and Dwight Hassler. Uh, if you like this show, guys, we have a really exciting live one coming up this Sunday. We're moving downstairs to the big stage at the Beat Kitchen for a Your Stories extravaganza featuring a full cover band and an opening set from Dwight's new band, The Grey Ghost, and a closing screening of the web series The Street Wizard's Apprentice from our friends in Muscular Clown, who are also the special guests at Your Stories. It's going to be a tremendous night with a really special collection of talent. You can get your tickets early at BeatKitchen.com or through links on the Nerdalogs website and Facebook page. We really hope to see you there. Uh, with that said, let's go back to May right now for a quieter but incredibly wonderful night of stories. Uh, we're going to start the second act with a piece that's not written by a woman of the woods or a wild woman, but rather a, wi- a wizard of the woods, uh, Stephen Sondheim. Yes. I uh, uh, watched... Six by Sondheim on HBO Go last night. It's so good. Um, and this song is like sexist as fuck, but we're gonna gender bend it <laughs> yeah. and hope that it doesn't come off sexist as fuck. It's still gonna come off pretty. Do we still need to vamp? Do we still need to vamp? Yeah, for a minute. Okay. Cool. Uh, fun fact about Stephen Sondheim that I learned as a teenager at Carnegie mm. Mellon's pre-college program for musical theater. He has a sex dungeon in his house. I believe that. Yes. Yes. Sec- our teacher made us turn off our recording devices because nerds were recording his lecture. He's like, turn off your devices. Stephen Sondheim has a sex dungeon in his apartment. <laughs> okay, turn back on now. Yeah, and we were all like, okay. I'm going to double check that we're going, and then you guys are. Stephen yeah, Sondheim sex dungeon. Stephen Sondheim I, sex dungeon. Stephen. Sounds like a Herald team that I don't want to be on. <laughs> all right, are we all good? Right. Yep, yeah, as soon as this goes, you are. Yeah. 
I abuse her or show her disdain? Why does she run from me? If I should lose her, how shall I regain the heart she has won from me? Agony beyond power of speech When the one thing you want is the only thing out of your reach. High in her tower, she sits by the hour, maintaining her hair. Blithe and becoming, and frequently humming a light-hearted air. Agony, far more painful than yours. When you know she would go with you If there only were doors Agony Hold the torture they teach What's as intriguing Or half so fatiguing As what's out of reach Am I not sensitive Well-mannered and caring And considerate Passionate Charming as kind as I Everything maidens would wish for Then why no? Do I know? A girl must be mad You know nothing of madness Till you're climbing her hair And you see her up there And you're nearing her All while you're hearing her Agony, misery, woe But it's different for each Always ten steps behind, always ten feet below, and she's just out of reach. Agony that can cut like a knife. I must have her to than a princess, so. Uh, <laughs> get Dwight and Eric back up here. Yeah. Eric also, like, expert, expert uh, speaker holding in that. Song. Yeah. Like, really nicely done. Hell yeah. You should put that on your resume. <laughs> we, yes. were gonna, we were going to learn that live, and literally, like, it's a two-and-a-half-minute song, and there's a 30-minute video on YouTube of the theory and the chords behind it. And I, I worked on it for about five minutes. I'm like, fuck you, son. We're doing karaoke. Yeah. I did the same thing because I listened to it, and I was like, oh, it sounds like two notes. And then I'm, like, not good at playing music, and I was like, fuck me. Here, remember, do you want to do it? Remember, remember I told you not to say that before you start playing piano? <laughs> Very mediocre. Uh, this She's next very song good. Don't listen to her. is a cover of a cover. Uh, it's Annie Lennox covering The Clash. Thank you. 
show with last last month uh will be gracing our presence with a song so give it up for molly that's a little hard to follow i have to say um i this is really more of an idea that and by that i mean i haven't sung it out loud um, but the backstory for it is uh, that I didn't. I was thinking about. I really liked this theme a lot, and um, I was thinking about that. I felt like I should probably have a lot of stories about being wild under the forest since I grew up in Vermont. But I don't really. Uh, but I do have a very strange obsession with eating wild edibles. Um, Ooh, yeah. So I thought I'd write a song about that. Uh, and I finished it around uh, 5 o'clock, so bear with me. Um, but what I'm hoping is that when you pick up, it's very repetitive at a certain point, and that when you pick that part up that you'll sing along with me if you can remember yes. the little hooks. Aim for that. Woo! Okay, so... Oh, right outside my childhood home, some honeysuckle grew well trimmed. I'd rip the female organs off and suck the nectar from within. Oh, then hung along the Vermont state flower had sweet little petals shaped like pins. Venture farther 
away But I would eat those plants today You should know I would suck the center from those clover pins And I'd eat that honeysuckle too So that's the part that I'll repeat Suck the center from the clover pins And I'd eat that honeysuckle too In July I'd hunt for these little tiny strawberries that don't don't in Vermont anymore, I didn't get that part quite right. And my neighbor helped me smell and batch of wild chives near our playhouse floor. I'd venture farther away, but I would eat those plants today. You should know I would suck the center from the clover pins, and I'd eat that honeysuckle too. Thank you. Uh, outside. Then outside my uncle's fishing camp were raspberry bushes red and black. Blocking white soil shaped just like hearts, I'd never really want to head back. Venture farther away, but I would eat those plants today. You should know I would suck the center from the clover pins. Hunt for strawberries that no longer grow there. I'd smell the chives near the playhouse floor. Pull the berries from the bush and pluck the hearts of sore. And I'd eat that honeysuckle too. Thank you. <laughs> Just after college, I learned Queen Anne's lace had a bitter carrot flavored root, and the wild flower reserves, no, and the wild flower reserves floor had edible mushrooms that I could elude. Venture farther away, well, I would eat those plants today. You should know I would suck the center from the clover pins, hunt for strawberries that no longer grow. Smell the chives near the playhouse floor Pull the berries from the bush and pluck the hearts of sore Uproot some carrots to a mushroom loot And I'd eat that honeysuckle too Now when there's a garnish on my drink That's so wasteful I think And I taught my son that wild edibles are fun And we'll never starve from having nothing to eat You should know I would No, venture farther but I would eat those plants today You should know I would suck the center from the clover pins Hunt for strawberries that no longer grow Smell the clothes chives near the playhouse floor Pull the berries from the bush and pluck the hearts of sorrel Uproot some carrots to a mushroom loot Use the garnish from my drinks and teach my kid to gather And I'd eat that honeysuckle too to bring up your next speaker. She is the co-host of the show tonight. Can I vamp more? Yeah, you're good now. All right. I'm so pleased to bring this next speaker to the stage. She's the co-host of my show tonight. Katie Johnson-Smith, everybody. Hi, I'm Katie Johnson-Smith. Thank you, Becca, for vamping. Um, I had to pull this up on my phone. Uh, cool. Uh, yeah. So I'm Katie Johnson-Smith. I have what some would likely call a feminist bikini line. Um, there was a time in my life where I was self-conscious about that fact. However, fuck it. 
I can't tell you how little I care about what others think of my pubes. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Before the first vacation I took with uh, my now husband, I thought it was critical to pay some lady a modest sum for the honor of stripping me of my vaginal eyelashes. Um, I didn't really have the foresight to think, oh, hey, Northern Michigan, which is where we were going, is actually kind of cold in early June, so there's like no way you will be... Uh, showcasing your upper thigh meat in your cute high-waisted two-piece. So maybe you could just like spend this money on anti-aging cream or something so you can be forever young. Uh, cool. But like, what am I, an oracle? I'm not. I'm not an oracle. I'm not an oracle. My brother works for Oracle, but I am not an oracle. But like uh, northern Michigan in early June while being cold is incredibly beautiful. And um, I used to while away large swaths of my pubeless childhood summers by visiting my grandparents who had a house there. Uh, I had not returned to northern Michigan's picturesque but frigid shores since my family sold my grandparents' house after my grandmother died. This vacation felt like a homecoming of sorts, and while my husband and I did not spend any beach time sunbathing in our high-waisted two-pieces, we did spend a few hours one day walking along a beautiful stretch of beach near my grandparents' house. Uh, I had hoped to catch at least some sort of view of said house since in part it felt like a part of my home and family. And I was lucky enough to glimpse the house sitting in a wooded area across the bay from where I stood. I stared across the bay and wept for joy, for sadness, for loss, for a time in my life that is over, for people in my life who had passed away, uh, for vividly faded memories, and a little bit because, like, why did I waste so much money on a bikini wax when I really should have invested in handkerchiefs? <laughs> I bawled my eyes out. My husband comforted me for like 10 seconds until he spotted a full raccoon skull that he picked up, stuck in his backpack, and spent the rest of vacation boiling the decaying brains out of. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much. Uh, coming next to the stage, we have another person named Katie. Yes, Katie Dow, who is wearing a beautifully colorful necklace. So welcome, Katie Dow. My mom knows everything about me, literally everything. I would like to say it's because my mom smothers me or pries into my life or constantly calls me forcing me, to, forcing me to tell her everything, but that's not true. I call her every day and tell her everything whether she wants to hear it or not. Usually I start to tell her something and she's like, Kate, do I, re do I really want to hear this? And I'm like, let's find out. <laughs> All the sex I had with the Tinder date, my strange bowel movement, that annoying thing my coworker said, she knows it all. And one thing I have made perfectly clear to her is this. If I die under even remotely strange circumstances, she must get my story on Dateline. <laughs> I will never speak to her again if my death is not portrayed on this NBC Wonder Show. And I mean it. I will not haunt her once. I will not send a butterfly to rest on her shoulder in the middle of winter so she knows I'm still with her. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> she knows it. We've talked about it. It's pretty much my only living will. And I thought I finally had the chance a few years ago. I had been backpacking around Asia for a couple of years and had been to Cambodia twice. I had very proudly become one of those insufferable backpackers who was like, I've seen Cambodia. <laughs> I want to go somewhere remote. So, so, right
rightfully so, the universe was like, let's take this bitch down a peg. <laughs> My friend and I Googled remote, non-touristy Cambodian island, and we found Koh Tamai. It's an island roughly the size of Manhattan with literally nothing on it, aside from six huts built by a German couple. There wasn't even transportation to this island. Our trip there involved taking a minibus and writing down the name of a village and asked to be dropped off there, and then hopping on the back of some local's motorbike where they drove us to the pier, and then getting in the island's private boat, a.k.a. a canoe with a motor tape to it, and then riding through the, on that through the open ocean for about an hour. But we got there, and it was everything we were hoping for. It was as remote as a coherent thought in Donald Trump's brain. <laughs> a joke given to me by my mom, by the way. <laughs> it had the kind of quiet that as 21st century beings we were unaccustomed to, the kind of silence that takes some getting used to. The beach was pristine, the water was crystal clear, they had hammocks and kayaks and beach toys. There was no electricity but a generator that ran at night. Just to fully explain how awesome this place was, even though I thought this island was the making of my Dateline episode, I still actively recommend it to everyone. It was paradise. We spent our days on the beach letting our tans and smugness grow. We were the real travelers. We tossed a frisbee on the beach and laughed at all those people on those islands filled with buckets of booze and body paints. <laughs> Fools. Kavita, the owner, reminded us again and again that we were in the jungle. She would say the trees were thick right up to the water until they chopped them all down to build their eco-lodge. In order to keep the nature feel of the place, they were built with the trees they cut down and the walls didn't meet the ceiling so you could have bugs crawling on you while you showered. That first night, instead of turning off our hut lights, we waited for the generator to shut down and plunge us into total deserted island jungle darkness. This is where Keith Morrison's voice would have overplayed water lapping up on a dark beach. <laughs> they tucked in for the first night in the jungle, the bliss of ignorance not knowing what was lurking in those open waters. <laughs> I woke up a couple hours later in that sleepy, half-awake fog. I sat on the toilet and noticed my friend sitting straight up in bed. I heard noises coming from outside. What is that? I shouted to my wide-awake friend, Shut up, shut up, shut the fuck up! She scream-whispered through tightly gritted teeth. <laughs> Me still not fully awake. Is it morning? Why are the lights on? I screamed. I finished peeing and said, I'm just going to go see what it is, grabbing for the door. No, shut the fuck up, my friend continued. I stared at her, so confused, and instead just peeked through the large crack in the door jam. Cut to Keith Morrison interviewing my parents. They would tell him some adorable anecdote about me, and he would give that handsome side grin and say something like, she sounds like quite the girl. <laughs> Indeed, I was, Keith. <laughs> I saw several men pacing up and down the beach, illuminated by the moonlight bouncing off the water. They were screaming at each other, but since it was in Khmer, we had no idea what they were saying. I climbed under the mosquito net and sat next to my heavy-breathing friend. I was finally fully awake and realized what was going on. Well, I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I knew it wasn't good. Are they sawing something? I asked. <laughs> my friend gave a terrified shrug. The men were pacing up and down the beach, screaming, rah, rah, rah. We could hear women screaming, ah, ah. We heard a boat's motor idling nearby. Eventually, they walked up to our cabin. 
They walked on our balcony and shined a flashlight under the door and walked around and shined a flashlight in all of our windows. They walked around our entire cabin over and over, shining a flashlight in every window and every door. They went back by the bathroom where the ceiling didn't meet the wall and shined a light in there. They walked away and we would slowly, quietly exhale, but then we, they would walk back and our breath would trap again. I was shaking so badly that even my shoulders were shaking. I could feel myself getting ready to vomit. I was thinking about my mom, my poor worrywart mother, who didn't want me backpacking around the world but supported me anyway. Now I would die on a practically deserted Cambodian island and she would never have my body. I had no way to even send her a goodbye message. Cut to my parents stabbing their eyes while Keith asked them, a young girl traveling the world by herself, didn't you worry? My parents would look at each other and grin and talk about how my mom did and my dad didn't, but nothing was going to stop me. Keith side grin. <laughs> my mouth was stone dry from fear and I went through a plan in my head. If they came in the front door, I would run out the back and try to jump off the shower and run into the jungle. But if my friend ran into the jungle, I would run into the ocean. She's much faster than me, and I kept thinking about that quote, you don't have to run faster than the bear to get away, you just have to run faster than the guy next to you. No way could I do that. We both just kept saying, I'm so scared, I'm so scared. We were unable to even attempt to calm each other down. We just lay there, breath still caught in our chest, while these men shined a flashlight through the window directly over our heads. Are we going to die? I asked my friend. She just looked at me and said nothing. We laid there, gripping sweaty, shaky hands, occasionally wiping away a tear. And eventually it just stopped. It got deserted, island silent again. The only sound, the bugs from the jungle. Our grip still firm, we sat in heavy silence, just waiting. Is it really over? I squeaked when enough silence had passed. I don't know, my friend said. Every passing minute bringing me closer to believing we had received our stay of execution. I slowly let myself breathe again, my breath escaping slowly through my nose like a small puncture to a tire. We laid there for a while, just continuing to hold hands, staring up at the ceiling until eventually one of us let go. Then enough time passed and adrenaline drained from our bodies, we fell asleep. We woke up with the sun, got dressed for breakfast, and found Kavita sitting by a computer. Guten Tag, she said cheerfully. As I shot daggers at her, what happened last night? I demanded. Oh, did you hear that? Those were police officers. They had gotten prostitutes from the mainland and were looking for a place to sleep with them. We told them we were full, but apparently they didn't believe us. <laughs> we decided that we needed an early morning swim to clear our heads, so my friend and I bobbed in the ocean while the sun finished rising. Out of the woods walked those police officers and their ladies. In the light of day, I could see that they each had an automatic rifle strapped to their chest and pistols strapped to their ankles. We carried on for the next couple of days in our jungle paradise. No, this wasn't my Dateline episode, but maybe that was a good thing. Keith is supposed to tell me how brave I was and how proud my parents must have been. But I laid in that bed waiting to be murdered, and I was literally about to shit my pants and looking into my friend's eyes, my best friend of nearly a decade, and just willing God to take her and save me. <laughs> Cambodians would accept her as a sacrifice. <laughs> Maybe I should rewrite my will. At least I can t learn to become the hero of my own Dateline story. Kenny Dow, everybody! All right, I 
am so thrilled to bring up your next performer. Uh, she is a recipient of the Gwendolyn Brooks Award, which means she's the most important poet in Illinois. Give it up for Jean Jennings! Hey y'all, that's a joke that I'm the most important poet in Illinois. <laughs> Um, I'm in the middle of writing a bunch of funeral poems, but this crowd seems more fun than that. <laughs> so I'm going to read something that was published a long time ago, and I haven't been able to read lately, because there's always kids in the audience. And I saw a child come in, but they were too small to like comprehend, so I think it's good. Uh, I'm fascinated with carny folk, and this poem is called Carnivorous. My wife is finishing her bath. She stands with each small foot in its own zinc washtub, belly dripping suds onto the wooden floor. Kettle still glowing, a ladle rests on the bucket, bead of water gathering at the lip. Hungry, I can hardly bear to watch. On the midway, a talker drums the tip, scans for boys sidling the crowd, long awkward wrists. Glaring white creases of dungaree, hems let down and let down again. Boys, just old enough to Roman packs, who, having seen a sister's white flesh bared by rolled sleeves or the pink calves of a cousin bending over the laundry, will pay to see more. A snake girl, sinuous, forked tongue, a tattooed and bearded lady, a woman with four legs, a reckoning silence followed by snickering glances. A ten-in-one show, they'll pause at other booths. A frog boy rolling cigarettes with his lips. A man who sips paraffin and breathes out flames. A gaffed mermaid, half fish, half fetus. And the eager geek, live chicken in his hands, biting off the wild-eyed head. But the finale, my wife. Most will see more than they desired. A human mountain, marbled slabs of thighs and breasts. She'll dwarf their ill-portioned bodies, farmer's arms attached to boys' skinny shoulders. But there's always one who imagines, hand hard in his pocket, the rise to her summit, how easily she could eat a man, how he could burrow, be swallowed, these are the boys she watches, those with a taste for sizable beauty, who rise to the beckoning honey trap of her kinked finger and knock at our trailer door, sweet with ardor, fragrant as meat. They think she's as gluttonous. They don't know better. Wide-eyed, farm-fresh, tender boys, warm as birds, Thrashing in my ravenous hands and bloody mouth. Um, so, this next thing I'm going to read is something that actually happened to me. I met the Greek muse Polyhymnia in Marketplace Mall in Champaign, Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> I used to work at Sears Appliance Repair where at least four times a day I'd hear something along the lines of, 
honey, I need to speak to a man about my lawnmower. So, every day was a very long day. So, polyhymnia at the mall bus stop. It wasn't her size that caught my attention, but she was big. Five and a half feet tall and packing the weight of three women. Her skin was cinnamon, sanded with coffee-colored freckles and something. Something about her face was not quite right. Maybe it was the light. A shadow caught between mouth and chin. No, it was a goatee. A light brown, short goatee that any 14-year-old boy would be proud about. And she sat down next to me, arranging shopping bags at her feet, and I knew I wouldn't be able to stop looking at her. Like you keep looking at a highway accident, the cars piled like toys, trying to see if there's any blood. I knew this, and I sighed. And that's when she spoke to me. Waiting is life. Life is waiting. I waited all my life for my first husband. Her words hit me physically. She was a muse that browsed the white sails, an oracle inhaling food court vapors. How many husbands can a goddess have? How long does a goddess live? I tried to look her in the eyes, but I stared at her goatee and felt guilty and full of questions. That's right. Sign don't do you no good. Didn't do me no good. I waited for my first husband and he made me wait all the time. I was waiting at the restaurant for our first date. I was waiting for that ring on my finger. He made me wait at the altar. Yes, he did. He made me wait at the church. Guests wandering round. Preacher pulling at his coattails. When he finally walked the door, he looked at me and said, girl, you've been waiting long? <laughs> when I dragged my eyes up to hers, they were closed. And every so often she pointed a finger at my chest. She knew I couldn't move, that I couldn't move. I forgot, forgot about the thin mustache above her mouth and the veil of her beard. I began to watch her eyes moving behind the lids restlessly and waited for her, her voice to ease out like smoke. I think when we married, I won't be waiting so much, but no, I'd be wrong that time too, girl. I make dinner and hot on the table. But by the time he come home from the neighbors, the chicken waiting on his funeral, and those mashed potatoes cold like ice. Then he complained while I warm up the plates and eyes taking too long. When I having that first baby, he won't be having no wet spots in his car. He made me wait for a cab. That baby need a name. He got to think on it a while. That baby called baby for a whole year. <laughs> it made me tired. I wait for him to come home from work, poker game, the office. He says, girl, you've been waiting, but I'm a man. And sometimes I got to be somewhere. And you know what? One day he asked me to draw him a bath. I know he made me wait so I get that water good and hot. I mean, boiling, the steam rising off the top like a whistling kettle. What'd you guess he do? For once, he jumped right in. And then he jumped back up saying, Woman, you trying to kill me? No, I ain't trying to kill him. Just figured it'd be like all the rest of the time. Shoot. Should be thanking me anyway. Because he'd be a pretty man. I don't tell you that. Oh, Lord, he pretty. Sat for his foot. He got that little toe. It'd be curled under. But somehow the burn straightened it up. And now he pretty all over. <laughs> I know what you thinking, child. But no, he don't thank me for that. 
Just made me wait so long. Finally, I see I can't wait no more. And now I've got a new man. So there you go. Waiting is life. Life is waiting. I waited all my life for my first husband. Opening her eyes, she pointed at me one last time and said, Baby, I think your boss is here. Her lips moved into the lazy smile of the satisfied, and then she stood up, arranged her bags and layers around her legs, and waded back into the mall. The crowd opened before her like mist, surrounded, and she was gone. But in her absence, the smell of wisteria, until it was swallowed by the smell of pretzels breaking, damp leather jackets, exhaust, and all of us exhausted. Thank you. commiserate with your uh, story about dudes being like, what about I need a dude to talk to you about this shit. Today I was at a garage sale and a, and a kind old gentleman um, told me that my husband needed to protect me and then I said no. <laughs> cool. Uh, well we're down to our last speaker of the night and this lady is a part of Smash Coven, uh, the witches who do like the fundraising and stuff. Um, she is an author. She is a comedian. Uh, she has uh, co-authored a book called uh, Taylor Swift Girl Detective which has had a question about it on who wants to be a millionaire, which means she is famous. Uh, I was once with you, uh, Larissa, it's Larissa Zagaris. Uh, I was once with you, Larissa, at C2E2 like two years ago, and a woman popped out of nowhere and goes, are you Larissa from Teens, Midwest Teen Sex Show? And Larissa's legitimately famous. Uh, so everyone, you're, you're very honored to be in the room with her today. Give it up for Larissa Zagaris. Thank you. I've had the advantage of watching this whole rare evening, and Cloaked in Shadow is my choice. I've watched you all here. Um, this room is like our own little piece of Twin Peaks with the floor, so we're missing it, but we're not. Uh, Vanessa's amazing. All the speakers tonight were fantastic. Uh, Ear Center, it does amazing work, and thank you all for being here. I didn't do anything to put it together, but I'm really excited about all the talent and all the warmth, and I feel like this is a really good alley-oop out of a really um, shitty time that I've gone through. Uh, so, without further ado, here are some things I want you to know about me. I kick things all the time. Um, <laughs> one, I do not like it when people say to keep positive when bad things happen or are happening. I think this phrase is about as helpful as someone looking at a fatal wound and loudly telling the wounded, you should really go to the doctor. <laughs> um, number two, I have and have had, as I think probably anyone in this room has or have had, a lot of elements present in my rich, full, wonderful life that would cause many people uh, to not know what else to say but uh, keep positive. <laughs> That's fine. It's a default phrase of comfort, and we're encouraged to share default phrases of comfort with one another when we A, care and don't know what the hell else to say, or B, don't care and don't know what else to say. Three, C, what I really don't like is when people start believing the default phrase of comfort and feel like they're doing something bitterly wrong by not following the edict of the phrase, keep positive! 
you can keep your head on straight without keeping blisteringly, impossibly, brightly positive. The only people I tolerate the latter kind of positivity from are very young pop stars or survivors of body-wrenching diseases who have found new freedom and wearing silk caftans and rubies to brunch at midnight. <laughs> Number four. I grew up on the final forest-preserved fringe of the Chicago Southland before it turns into farmland or car and coach bag selling metropoli. About 20 miles southwest just of here, where we are now, where the main roads are lined with trees and the dead. The only thing more prevalent than tiny split levels and cemeteries in my hometown are woods. So, um, <laughs> this is my inherent visual default metaphor for anything. Little Red Riding Hood is my fairy tale. Woods tempt and terrify me as they likely do us all. Number five. When I was a youngin', I read a book about making it out of the woods that stuck close with me. If you haven't read it, I'm going to ruin it for you. Uh, but in the best way, because if you haven't read it by now, you never will. Sorry. So you're getting the lesson anyway. Number six. I really want to call the book Girl Hatchet. This is not to confuse it with Boy Hatchet. <laughs> Boy Hatchet is really called Just Hatchet by Gary Paulson. And you usually read it in like 7th or 8th grade. Girl Hatchet is really called The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, and it's by Stephen King. Girl Hatchet and Boy Hatchet are both stories about survival in the face of the immense, uh, face of the immense physical and emotional danger. In Boy Hatchet... A 13-year-old boy has to figure out how to survive with naught but a hatchet his mom gave him and his wits after the pilot of the little Cessna plane he's on dies of a heart attack um, while flying the plane, which is very harrowing. The boy is lost in the woods of New York or Canada, I cannot remember which one, <laughs> where he crash lands the plane into a lake and figures out how to use his trusty hatchet to kill a bunch of woodland creatures and make fire all while dealing with the divorce and his knowledge of his mom's secret affair that preceded the divorce. Tough break, thinking about your mom being an adult who has different drives, uh, darknesses and depths than maybe she ever expected, while you have to kill slugs to live. But, spoilers, the kid makes it uh, alive long enough for at least two more survival books to be written about him. <laughs> it's called Brian's Saga. Uh, in Girl Hatchet, what I will biasly also refer to as the hatchet of my heart, a nine-year-old girl, nine-year-old girl, is traveling with her mom and brother after her parents' recent divorce in the woods of Maine. Uh, the girl's brother is hotly angry about the divorce and can't stop arguing with their mother about it. Our girl hangs back to avoid jumping into the fray, takes a quick pee off the beaten path before promptly sliding down a ravine to her possible doom. Who can't relate? Uh, she's lost in the woods for nine days with her Walkman and some trashy snacks. Her hatchet, so to speak, is her clear head and her imagination. When the going gets really tough for our girl, she imagines she's being watched over by none other than her crush and sports idol, Tom Gordon, a real baseball player who played for the Red Sox at the time the book came out. Okay. Uh, I only knew that this player was a ball player from this book. I'm not hating on it. He also played for the Cubs and the White Sox, so he's been all over the place. <laughs> By hallucinating the dream watcher Flash Gordon, which was his nickname, and being smart about divvying up her last rations of Twinkies and Surge, and calling on her memory of a little house in the Prairie Book to follow a water source to civilization, our girl might just survive. Until, of course, she either hallucinates or realizes she's being hunted by either a bear or something called the God of the Lost... A creature built of bugs and death and crave and hunger for humans racked with fear. It's a Stephen King book. 
The logic of the God of the Lost follows that. The more scared someone is, the tastier they are. Damn. Our girl does, spoilers, make it through. But only by fully accepting what she cannot logically accept. That the world is not only just dark and full of shadows, but also full of her mom and brother, real and imaginary Tom Gordon, a rescue team that may or may not give up the search for her at the exact moment she expires, and real and phantasmagoric killer bears. She acknowledges the truth of this, the great duality of all things, and ultimately smacks the darker of those things out to eat her up, dead between the eyes, with a Walkman she pitches like a baseball. She closes her game strong, not by keeping positive, but by keeping her wits about her and her eyes clear, even though she's scared shitless and, at this point, fresh out of Twinkies and Surge. Once she's dealt with the God of the Lost, slash standard issue actual bear, she's also sort of rescued by a passing hunter who doesn't quite believe his eyes. In a Wikipedia article I hastily read while writing this since I read this book in eighth grade and remember everything about it except the order of the ending, that... Even though the hunter helped her, she knew she earned her rescue. Double damn. Um, I wish our default phrase of comfort could be, you will all earn your rescue, instead of keep positive. I wish our default response to people in trouble, to people breaking down due to their own design, or that of good old disease, or life, or fate, would not just be solely, sorry, yikes, or focus on the good things. In addition to those phrases... Or instead of that, uh, just have faith, have trust, etc. I wish we could add to the comfort phrase stable the following and really believe what we say. I hope you're clocking your surroundings. I hope you're charting your responses. I hope you're taking stock of your supplies and that if you're pinned under a tree, you're using your mind and my mind and everyone around you's mind to figure out how to MacGyver the last of them into a crude pulley system to free yourself, or at least the part of yourself that needs freeing most immediately. I hope you're numbering your strengths. I hope your Walkman is charged. I hope you're swinging your hatchet, or your Twinkie, or your Game Boy. Whatever it is that keeps you sharp, I hope it's sharpening you. I hope you're picturing your Tom Gordon by your side. I hope you know the only way out is through, if you make it out at all. I hope you make it out. I hope you close the game strong. And number seven, I hope you earn your rescue. Thank you. said we can have the downstairs if we have a big show so the end of the year show we're gonna have a full band uh like full rock band uh it's gonna be really sweet oh and i want to also give it up so in the history of this show the only people who have hosted besides me typically are people who it's either their birthday or they're leaving the nerdalogs and then last friday my buddy gary who's one of my podcast heroes hosted in la and then tonight these guys did it and they did awesome let's give it up for Katie. Uh, that was really cool Oh, really good. You guys did great. I think I'm going to step yeah. down more often. Hey, man, you're, we just have good shoes to fill. That's all. Yeah, these are $20 at Walmart. Cool. <laughs> <laughs>
This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.